This is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. Met a man wearing a t-shirt Said Virginia is for lovers Had a Bible in his left hand And a bottle in the other He said all you're really given Is the sunshine in your name both started laughing when the sky started to rain Get along down the road We got a long, long way to go Scared to live, scared to die We ain't perfect, but we try Get along while we can Always give love the upper hand Paint a wall, learn to dance Call your mom, buy a boat Drink a beer, sing a song Make a friend So, Brendan, what are we talking about this week? All right, so we had a bunch of different topics that we were planning to address this week, but um, a few events have transpired over the last few days that have kind of changed the direction in which we want to take the program. Mm -hmm. And the the biggest event was um, the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg a few days ago. So we're going to spend some time talking about her life and her legacy uh, before getting into the the Supreme Court battle that is just getting underway. And then the second event that has transpired in the last couple of days was that Louisville, Kentucky came back with minimal charges uh, against the police officers responsible for the death of, no of Breonna Taylor. <laughs> we'll certainly get into that. Uh, and so we're going to talk about you know what that means too. So it's an episode really focused on immediate events and you know for better or for worse you know, for worse in a lot of cases 2020 keeps giving us these you know these events that seem like it upends the whole news cycle and then every week we have more so we have two really big ones this week and uh, we're going to start with the passing of Justice Ginsburg and you know I told you this offline where this this came in uh, late Friday night that Ginsburg passed and while it wasn't entirely unexpected it was pretty well known that she'd been dealing with health health issues for a while now and you know she's 87 so (laughs) right she's 87 she had uh, survived five previous bouts with cancer and we knew Mm -hmm. she was had been hospitalized a couple times this year so um, in that sense it wasn't completely out of the blue in another sense you know, it, it was it was kind of shocking. You know, to get the you know the message, the notification on your phone that Justice Ginsburg died. It was a you know, wow. This is a this is a big moment. And what I said to you though is that I, that came up on my phone, and my first reaction was wow. And then I paused the beat, and then it was wow. President Trump's going to get to appoint another justice, and we're going to get into all of that later. But in reflecting upon my reaction to that the next day, I felt that it was. I was kind of ashamed of the reaction. Honestly, I was, I think it's objectively the wrong reaction to have. And maybe it speaks to my mindset, my personal mindset, 2020, the political state of our country. But I wish that I had spent more time really mourning the loss of a legend before my mind immediately turned to what it meant for for politics in the United States and for the, the current Supreme Court. So um, I want to spend this first segment not getting into politics and just looking at Justice Ginsburg and, and why she was such a legend. And, you know, I'll let you speak to that a little bit. And I'm certainly happy to run through um, her bio as well. Yeah, um, I think it's interesting because I don't know that, I mean, certainly not five, 10 years ago, let's say, I couldn't have named um, probably more than two or three Supreme Court justices, and I don't know that Justice Ginsburg was was there. It was probably more the conservative ones that people were saying, like, this guy's insane. But, oh, people, people on liberals were saying, anyways. Um, <laughs> it's not um, distract. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, but I, I'd say the point of it is, uh, essentially, I, it is a shame that, that not only have people not really, I mean, people are certainly reflecting and, and celebrating her life today, but... Um, I think the immediate reaction, certainly by what you can see in the media, was was um, was not that way. But you know, when when we talk about um, a champion for um, equality, I think 
you know, there are few people who have had as many victories in that sort of arena um, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I think one of the cool, um, not cool, but but how how she went about it, um, I think was cagey and uh, was really special rather than tackle issues head on. You know, she would find men's rights issues and, and attack the question of equality by saying, you know, here are instances where men are not receiving equal treatment to women, but in doing so, we should ensure that, um, you know, that on the basis of sex, we're not making these decisions, obviously. Stealing the line from a movie where I learned a lot about, uh, about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But yeah, curious to hear um, your thoughts. Yeah, so I, I want to get into her career as a litigator, but I think it's useful to just kind of reflect on her biography and background in general. So born in 33 to uh, an immigrant father, at least her mother's parents were from Poland, so uh, Jewish, which is going to be significant later, uh, but goes you know, very family's focused on education. Um, she goes to Cornell University, finishes the, as the top female in her class. Um, where she meets her husband Marty, we'll get. In, I want to get into him a little bit too because I think their relationship is really interesting and worth talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after they graduate, she has a daughter, and then or they have a daughter, and then she goes to Harvard Law School where she's one of nine women in her class, I believe. Um, there's a famous story that's probably been circulating in the last few days where the Harvard Law professor asked, you know, the nine women, you know, what are you doing here, taking the place of a man? I uh, which, you know, I'm sure was just one of those chips on her shoulder. She just added into, uh, ends up transferring to Columbia um, when her husband graduated, finishes up at Columbia. So, and I think she became the first female. She served on the Harvard Law Review and the Columbia Law Review. Uh, finishes as, I think, tied for first in her class at Columbia. So just, you know... If she had stopped there and done nothing else, she would have been a trailblazer, an incredible woman as it is. And now I kind of want to get into what you were talking about, where she begins the women's rights division at the ACLU and between 73 and 76, I think, argues nine cases in front of the Supreme Court or six cases in front of the Supreme Court or something like that, wins five of them um, through these tactics that you were talking about uh, and, and gains these rights for women under the due process clause of the 14th amendment so an amendment that was originally written for to protect african americans whether or not it is done so is a different question but like that's the purpose of it and she was able to expand those protections to women um, through a lot of really cagey tactics Uh, and i think this is where her legend really starts to begin yeah um i think i think that anecdote about the the, the president of Harvard or whoever asked her what you know what are you doing here taking the place of a man I think one of the more interesting things that I that I really do think defines um, her as a person for me is that she originally said you know I'm here try, trying to learn like what what my husband's going to be doing all day so she didn't set out for this um, you know I want to be breaking glass ceilings all over the place I am you know this this uh feminist um sort of icon obviously but also activist by nature um it it was it was less of uh that and i think she she said something like uh you know i'm here to use what little talent i have as best as i can to like try and make the world a slightly better place or Mm -hmm. something to that effect um and so i i think it's really interesting in the context of who sort of the myth of RBG has become the notorious RBG is like where she started and what she set out to do. Obviously she does have a laundry list of accomplishments. Um, but I think not, not really to take a critical look at it, but in many ways to, to think, um, think a little bit more deeply on is that the sort of the feminist icon she has become in many ways, especially before you know she became kind of the, the author of most of the liberal dissents for the last decade that was not her intent um the law itself is something that was very special to her and i think mm-hmm. in many ways that that is why she developed such a friendship 
with somebody who's you know seemingly polar opposite in Scalia. Yeah, so I'm I'm sort of meandering a bit here, but I think um, my point at, at at the end is is that we often or we tend to gravitate towards specific things about people in order to lionize them and make them figureheads for our causes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she's an interesting case of, um, I think she's, she's certainly worn that well for the last, uh, you know, five or six, seven years or so. Um, but it's not really true to her nature. It doesn't feel always true to her nature. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, so I think there's kind of there's a couple aspects to it. One, the achievements that we um, kind of iterated earlier of all of the things that she did as part of the Women's Rights Project is the ACLU. I think Scalia calls her like the third good marshal of advancing like women's causes. So she has that kind of aspect where I don't think there's any doubt that she, she grew into and became the leading role for um, advocating equality and achieving equality in many ways for women in, in this country, right? So she has that. I think the second part that you're alluding to is her role as a jurist. So after after a time at the ACLU, she becomes, or is simultaneously a professor at Columbia and becomes like the leading female civil procedure person in, in you know, in the country, um, another achievement in and of itself. But then she gets nominated to the District uh, of Appeals the Federal District of Appeals, and where she first meets Scalia. And she gains this reputation as a consensus builder, a moderate kind of, if you will, where she's she develops, as you noted, this really close friendship with someone who ended up having, or didn't end up, but had very different views on the Constitution, constitutional issues, and was able to you know build consensuses so that you know the court was able to operate in a more more as like one voice as opposed to many dissenting opinions. Um, so she serves in that body for 13 years and then gets, then there's a Supreme Court opening in 93 and Orrin Hatch, who's a Republican Senator from Utah, was a Republican Senator from Utah, um, suggests Ginsburg to President Clinton. And so to that point where you have a Republican Senator going to a Democratic president saying like, this is a justice that would be good for the Supreme Court, would be good for the country. <laughs> it's literally laughable to think about that today. Like it would never happen, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. But it, it, it speaks not only to a different political climate, but also to how Ginsburg was viewed. Um, she was confirmed 96 to 3. So people overwhelmingly didn't necessarily think of her as an extremist. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think she was. But I think to your point is now she's kind of held up as this liberal icon. And I understand why. But as a jurist, again, you, you said this already, that wasn't necessarily who she was for the vast majority of her life. Yeah, yeah. And, I- sorry, but you said this too but it's like that's not a criticism of her at all it's right. actually a, a, a I mean it as a compliment of like she was someone that worked to achieve her goals but also worked to build consensus and that quote that's been around of like um, you know lead in a way that would make people want to follow I think mm-hmm. is how she did live her life largely yeah yeah and I mean I think there's no better example of that than her kind of opinion of Roe v. Wade, which I, I looked into a little bit because I was reading that um, some of the concerns of her candidacy in 1993 were from actual, uh, what was more of the feminist movement was concerned that she wasn't kind of committed to upholding Roe v. Wade um, as it, as it was, or, you know, as it unfolded in, in 73 when the case was. In. And so um and you know you're the you're the one L who's going to be able to school me on on really what's going on here but my understanding is is that basically she said that it it went beyond um really what the court was intended to do and that it was much more sweeping and it i think her criticism of it um which was really interesting is that it wasn't that she was necessarily opposed to what it was trying to do totally. but she was opposed to the method yeah. because in her mind by going you know far out of potentially their um what's the word i'm looking for their jurisdiction their jurisdiction yeah, yeah exactly where they're allowed to operate as a court um opened it up to this you know decade multi-decade long attack because it was in effect more extreme than than what was called for Right. And her approach would have been to win small victories, kind of like she had done for women's rights in general, to slowly build a foundation where you could build this and then it became a consensus. Mm-hmm. Like a little bit like 
how when gay marriage was finally legalized, right? There wasn't that much of a pushback on it because it had kind of all of these small victories had become. And as a society, we had kind of been like, all right, I think we're ready for this. But because, and again, I'm not an expert on this either, but from what I know, the opinion wasn't a great legal opinion. It has opened itself up, as you said, for 35 years to be attacked on legal grounds, which are are legitimate grounds to attack it on. People are just doing it for policy reasons, right? Mm. But again, to your earlier point where... Uh, you know, she was known as someone like who was a cautious jurist, right, and didn't want the court on either side to be overstepping its boundaries and really advocated for them to have like narrow decisions within the law. So, uh, again, credit to her for that consistency a- across um, across her view of how the court should operate. Yeah, yeah, no, no, definitely. I think if there is, you know, one thing that I that I think about in in today's context of how um, she's operated over over the past, um, you know, r- really becoming the figurehead of the liberal dissent. Obviously, she's a senior member of the liberal block in the Supreme Court, so she is going to be authoring um, many of those dissenting opinions. Um, but in those dissents, obviously, is is where she found uh, voice and, and really celebrity. Um, but I think in many ways. It's, it's easier to be kind of on the outside throwing stones. Um, and not to say that, that I disagree with, with many of her opinions. I think that they are, um, you know, some of what she has written is, is really tactful and really, um, you know, beautiful prose and, and also powerful. Um, but it's also to say that when you're doing it in dissent and you know that sort of the decision has already been made and the ramifications of what you're saying in dissent are really limited you're a lot freer to kind of say what you want absolutely yeah and that's i mean that's scalia kind of built his reputation on the exact right. same thing and then it, it does lead people in your cause to be able to read your words which can be fiery and a passion mm-hmm. because they're not making law and you know they're not making right. law right and then people can hold them up and be like she's our she's our girl she's our person out there fighting for us right just like we did with scalia on the other side mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and <laughs> And I think some of the parallels to that is that that it is it is just easier to disagree with what's going on without sort of being the one to sort of suffer the consequences of action, right? It's easier to be on the outside saying that everything that that's going on in here is wrong, um, but you don't suffer the fact that when you make a decision and you make policy or whatever you 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 sort of rule on a case and it has cascading implications you don't deal with that fallout because yeah exactly as you said right so i think just a few more things to wrap up is one it's important to know she became the first female jewish justice ever which is you know first of all second female jewish just second female justice period Mm -hmm. and first female jewish justice ever so just Again, these huge milestones, these glass ceilings, which she broke and have to acknowledge that. Um, I do want to say, and not at all to give him credit, but uh, the way she and her husband were able to work together, I think was really unusual for the times. And there's this famous antidote, who knows if it's true, but you know, when her daughter was acting up in, in school and you know, the guidance counselor would be calling her all the time. And she was at the time, you know, an, an important lawyer, certainly just as much as her husband was. And she said, you know, my husband and I parent 50-50. So every other time she misbehaves, you need to call him, right? And it's like one, like, heck yeah, way to stand up for yourself. But also like that her husband was able to take that on. And, you know, their, their husband passed um, a few years back and their daughter used to tell stories where, you know, Martin, her husband loved to cook, right? And because... He kind she of couldn't cook apparently, right? And he he knew that she was just better at the law than him, right? And he I think he said it. It was like it's a weird place to be in when your wife kind of has your dream job. But he was able to, you know, without ego, kind of let her live her her dreams and support her in doing that. And um, you know, it's it's the same type of thing you you see now with um, Emhoff. Is that his name? Harris's Emhoff, husband. Yeah, yeah. yeah, right. And it's like. Um, I don't know, again, I don't want to at all be in a position to giving like men credit for these women's success, but just like how for years men have been kind of supported by these mm-hmm. wonderful partners, right? Which I wanted to acknowledge at least like kind of their their great and unusual bond for the time. Yeah, yeah, the, the dynamic was, was really interesting. And I think, honestly, it had to have been a lot of the reason that she felt comfortable advocating for, for some of the... 
advocating in some of the ways that she did um, because I think a lot of the criticisms or the fears of sort of the women's equality movement is that we're going to destroy the natural family dynamic um, and she was like look at look me at <laughs> like exhibit like, a. we already yeah. have a kind of an, a, a different than normal for the times dynamic and we're I think we're thriving in it and so um, people should be given the freedom to sort of figure out how how to make that work um, so yeah yeah and I guess like the the last note and you alluded to this earlier is that her friendship with Scalia is legendary and you know while we are certainly no Ginsburg and Scalia <laughs> right like but it, that's kind of the point of this is that like we see things differently but we're able to talk and have civil conversations they're they're operating on a far higher and more significant plane but they're they're the shining example of two people that couldn't disagree more but were able to do so not only civilly but build like this unbelievable friendship and so as we transition into what is an ugly ugly supreme court fight that is really just beginning you know looking at that friendship i think is, is something that you know in an ideal world everyone would would do and, and try to be more like you know a justice ginsburg in that sense yeah yeah definitely So, so with that, I think there's like no better transition from, you know, how, how we might think a body like the Supreme Court would work in the ideal to how it works in practice. Well, it's not even the Supreme Court that we're criticizing. <laughs> it's the nomination process to get there. That's, yeah. that's fair enough. But I, I guess, I guess what, I would, what I think is that eventually um, we will have a Supreme Court that doesn't function like that because of the, the nomination process. Um, so I'm just going to open a beer for this one. Yeah, and we got we to get ready. After all the kumbaya of, of the <laughs> celebrating Ginsburg's right. life, which was well-deserved, this is, this is in very, very much the opposite of that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess I'll start with what is sort of the, uh, the, the, the fodder for like today's liberal rage, I guess you would call it. Rage? Um, <laughs> Rage is is a good word. I wouldn't say you just call it. People threaten to burn things down over our dead body. This whole system has got to come down. Those are the reactions I'm hearing and seeing. Well, you watch a little too much Fox News. That's on you. But are you saying those reactions aren't happening? I mean, I'm saying those are happening. I don't know that that is the like pervasive feel. The yeah, I mean, I think the the pervasive feel is that this is just like the epitome of hypocrisy. You have guys like Lindsey Graham on record saying that if this exact situation happens, not in an election year, we're literally talking 40 plus, like 40 some odd days from the election, not 10 months like we were in 2016, right? He says if this exact same thing happens, you know, and I go the other way, you can hold my words against me. And I mean, I, like at some point you just, you laugh because there's absolutely no... You, you knew this was going to happen. There was, a, you know, there's principled Republicans in the Senate don't exist. I think that's very clear. <laughs> I, I disagree, but continue with, with your um, slander. Well, all right. Who do you think, who, like, which senator in the Republican Party do you think has not gone full tilt behind Trump in the last, like, four years? Collins, Markowski, Romney. All right, well... Romney, it what because he voted for impeachment, but I think he's consistently spoken out against Trump when he feels like he's crossed the line. He was out there marching in the protests a few months ago, but all right, I would say that was more for optics than for anything. But uh, <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, all right. But how how is this um, given what happened four years ago? Like, could possibly be considered um, like a. a a fair way to go about things. Glad you asked. I have, I have lots of thoughts. So first of all, while 
I will totally acknowledge and concede that Lindsey Graham looks like a fool. I think that's more he shouldn't have made those comments two years ago. It's embarrassing from him. Um, and while there's some hypocrisy on the Republican side, I would say some I would is, say if you're going to talk rage as one as one end of the I know, spectrum. I, I, I would say enough, so. This is like the epitome of hypocrisy. I disagree, and so I think there's at least as equal amount of hypocrisy on the other side. And so let me read you a few quotes: Hillary Clinton in 2016. The president nominates and the Senate advises consents or not, but they go forward with the process. Joe Biden, the American people have deserve a fully staffed court at nine. Nancy Pelosi, what we're seeing here is a disrespect for the Constitution. The American people expect the president's nominee to be yeah, given a fair hearing. None, none of that happened. Elizabeth this Warren. Is, this is a full year. What are you talking Elizabeth about? Elizabeth Warren, I say, I say to you, things. do your job, for a, vote for a Supreme Court nominee. These so are like, not comparable situations. It's, but it's... What are you talking one about? One is 40 days, one is a year. How is that comparable? Because the job of a president is to put forth, is to nominate a Supreme Court justice. And it's the job of the Senate. So to, are you saying that the fact that if, if this happened one day before the election, would that have mattered? Great question. Absolutely not. So, <laughs> so <laughs> that's crazy. There have been 10 vacancies resulting in presidential, presidential election year nomination when the president and the Senate were from the opposite parties. The last one was obviously in 2016. Um, in only one of those cases was the center, the justice actually confirmed. So just to make that clear, in election year where the president is from one party and the Senate is from the different party, only one out of 10 times has it happened. In the cases where the Senate and the president were held by members of the same party, nine out of 10 times it's happened. So historical precedent tells us that when the Senate and the, and the president come from the same party, they're going to put a nominee through. So historically, this is what McConnell's doing is not out of line at all. In fact, 22 times there's been a vacancy and 22 times the president has nominated someone. So Trump's gonna put forth a nominee within the next week, just as the other 22 presidents before him have done. And just like when, you know, historically, when the Senate is controlled by the same party, they're gonna vote in that nominee and probably vote for that nominee. So, I mean, so that that's something that's interesting that I've never heard, and I would un not understand why Republicans in 2016 would not just say, we're the Republican Party is controlling the Senate, we're just not gonna look at your nomination. I, I right. instead of saying all this, the American people deserve a vote and all this other nonsense right. that they clearly don't believe. Right. The other, the other thing um, about that is, and, and, I, and I, I'm not, questioning your your facts you have you have the most beautiful facts kelly <laughs> but, uh, but the other thing is i don't really understand you know on the on the other side you know what what does one year make really so if if 10 months is long enough to to hold up and i i don't know if if, if that's uh in and of itself if 10 months was longer than most others were held up to to basically go an entire year without um, without a full Supreme Court seems like a long time. I don't know, but you know, it was clearly an arbitrary timeline, right? Like if if they had if it had happened in December, is December within twelve months? So that's that's fine. And then like, why are we? You know, why stop there? Let's round up from a year and a half before. It it, it seems to me, and I I don't disagree um, with the with the fact that like politics has has always played a role. Um, and in many ways in our hyper politicized lens, it's easy to see what's going on now and think like, oh, you know, people didn't used to do this, but people have always been doing this. I, I think that's I think that is potentially fair, but you can't disregard what these people said in 2016 and what they're doing today, which just makes like I don't understand how you could ever get back to like trying to build a. Um, you know, a consensus or a cooperation with Lindsey Graham, to me, his word is worthless. Yeah. So a couple of things there, as usual. Uh, one, before RBG became this massive celebrity, who do you think, in your opinion, I don't know if you have an opinion here, who do you think the most famous Supreme Court justice of all time probably was? For me, Thurgood Marshall. Okay. Do you have any other names that come to mind? Marshall's fair, first black justice, of course. Yeah. Right. So John Marshall is... Uh, Funny enough, same name. John Marshall is kind of held up as like the king of of justices. He comes up with the concept of judicial review, which gives the Supreme Court the power to kind of check Congress and making all of their actions. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's 
the premier justice held up for a couple hundred years now. And I was going to say, do you want to hear? I'm going to tell you the story anyway. So <laughs> uh, he is nominated and confirmed the Supreme Court uh, in 1801. Uh, he is a, a Federalist. Right? Uh, John Adams has just lost the election to Thomas Jefferson. Adams obviously comes from the Federalist side, Jefferson the anti-Federalist. In a lame duck session, when Adams had already lost the election, he gets through John Marshall as his chief justice. And as well, he, he packed numerous courts with his justices. So to your point of like, we kind of get caught up in like, it's never been worse before. It's like, you know, Republicans have never been this bad or stooped so low. John Adams, one of the most famous and pretty well-respected people in our country's history, did the exact same thing, arguably worse. He was a lame duck at the time. So I, I do want to make that kind of build off your point and agree with that is that this has been happening forever. This is not a new phenomenon as much as we want to, you know, kind of be self-centered and think it is. Secondly, is I'll totally concede, and I, I kind of hinted at this earlier, of the hypocrisy of the language used. So um, McConnell, for all intents and purposes, should have put Merrick Garland up and then voted him down and pretty much said, like, we're not going to vote for the justice of someone from the opposite party. Right? We hope, we're going to hope we win the election and then we'll vote on a justice from our party. He didn't. Um, and I understand why he didn't, right? He didn't want to put his members in a tough position to make a, a tough vote. So he took it all on himself and pretty much said, well, everyone can hate me. Fine. I'm not going to make my members vote on this, which is not a necessarily good thing for his country, but is good for his job and for his party. So if you want to criticize Graham and McConnell, and I'm sure there are many others for the language they used. Yeah, that's totally fair. And I, I concede that completely. I just think there's equal criticism for the language used on the other side. And what McConnell's doing in this session is certainly within his, not only his right, but within historical precedent to do. So I, I think, I think if, if the sort of the facts about the historical precedent are there, um, for me, then that should have been the argument from the beginning. The, I probably won't concede that this is the same situation because in, in 2016, really, this was kind of the, the first that most people were were hearing about it and there was sort of one line of thinking and then the other you can very easily say that all right you know what biden and what hillary clinton and all all of the folks on the left were saying when it was blatantly disregarded then they're going to say well all right fair is fair now 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 you do the same thing totally so it's not I, I i don't call that hypocrisy in the same vein um but i i, I mean I, I think again i think the, the reason that, in general, I'm not as animated about this as I think some other people are, is, one, uh, as, a, as a male, many of my rights are not <laughs> going to be in question here under the new court. Um, but I think, two, the, the sadder thing really is that, you know, the idea, the idea in, when, if we're talking about ideals, not what has really transpired in the courts, um, you know, since since the foundation of the country, but the ideal is that we have these sort of separate branches of government because they they do act as those checks on each other. Mm -hmm. And when uh, you hear things like Trump's like, I'm going to appoint a justice because if this if this election goes to the courts, I want I want my guys in there making the decision. Like that is, in my opinion, like a threat on democracy yeah. which people on any side should be like that doesn't sound right to me yeah i mean honestly the presence of trump makes everything worse in a lot of ways right because he presents uh, at least rhetorically some sort of threat to the democracy that we haven't really seen in our lifetimes and perhaps the country has never seen in its history so that i think that's a completely fair worry i think if you know, McConnell was doing this under a bush presidency or a reagan presidency there would still be the same outrage but perhaps the not the same fear, fear just because those are men of a different character in my opinion than than someone like trump so yeah and i mean we don't really need to make this particular segment about um trump's character in particular i think we're both in agreement that you know we're the shoe on the other foot for better or for worse you know we probably see the same thing supreme court justices are lifetime appointments and you don't you don't just go <laughs> apparently you just don't go doing making gestures on principle uh when we're talking about uh, you know potentially 20-year direction of the court but um to that i you know i've heard a few sort of suggestions of you know well all right 
if we can't do anything about this, what are we going to do? And so one that I thought was actually interesting um, were 18-year appointments or some type of actual term limit well beyond the presidency, well beyond, um, obviously, what, what senators are confirmed for, um, but something less than, you know, lifetime to ensure that presidents had more or less an equal number of appointments um, during their term. That was sort of one suggestion. Perhaps the more, uh, the one that's getting a little bit more traction is that Democrats are threatening to pack the court. And so, they're saying, well, we'll just add a few justices and nominate a few more, and there's no nothing in the Constitution that says we can't do that. Um, curious as to what you think. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm literally laughing because one FDR, another Democratic mm-hmm. president, is the, the one who made that strategy um, famous. But this is just really typical to me of Democrats, kind of two things about Democrats. And what I'm about to say is very partisan, I will I will admit that. But and I, I will explain why I'm, I'm more partisan about issues like this than I am about other issues at the end, if you're interested. Uh, but when Democrats lose, they love to change the rules. And I'm going to point to a couple of specific examples for that. So if you want to talk about... I'm sure the filibuster will come in here. Absolutely. So I, yeah, let me start with that one then. So we'll start with 2013, Harry Reid changes the filibuster rules, um, the nuclear option. I, that's what it was called at the time because no one, although it had been threatened before, no one thought it would actually go through with that. And just to be clear, the nuclear option, uh, the filibuster meant that you needed to get at least 60 votes to make anything happen. Uh, and what that generally assured in a country as divided as ours with Republicans, Democrats, usually in the 40s and 50s number of senators, which means that you would have to reach across the aisle and gain support from the other, from seven members of the other party to pass any legislation or to get executive branch appointees um, confirmed. Carrie Reid didn't like what was happening in the Obama administration in terms of trying to appoint people, understandably so, um, but, but he triggers the nuclear option um, back in 2013 and then has the audacity to celebrate with liberal activists in the room over as soon as it happens. And I want to read you a few quotes about what Republicans said at the time. Senator Lamar Alexander, who's retiring this year. It's another raw exercise of political power to permit the majority to do anything it wants whenever it wants to do it. Um, Senator Richard Shelby. Democrats won't be in power in perpetuity. This is a mistake, a big one for the long run. Maybe not for the short run, short-term gains. But I think it changes the Senate tremendously in a bad way. Um, McConnell gets up in a really famous speech, uh, and he says that a majority of them had never served in the minority before. And he says, the solution to this problem is at the ballot box. We look forward to having a great election in 2014, which they did, and in 2016, which they did. Uh, he, he got up and he, he turned to Reed and he said, you'll regret this, and you may regret this a lot sooner than you think. And finally, I'll end with McCain, who said, uh, this is a devastating breach of Senate procedure. Now there are no rules in the United States Senate. So when Democrats come back crying to me about what's happening, you did this. I have no sympathy for anybody who, who's complaining about the, the lack of a filibuster here. And now you even hear from like Elizabeth Warren who wants to eliminate the filibuster for legislation to get through like her policies. If you keep losing and then keep changing the rules, like you, you have no right to come to me years later when those same rules that you make have come and backfired on you and complain. If Biden wants to pack the court, which he won't because he's a sane person, which I've said a million times on this podcast, thank goodness he's a Democratic nominee. But if you if you have a Democratic president that comes in and packs the courts, you don't think Republican president's going to come in and put twice as many on there? Like Republican, we, we win in these situations. I'm not even, I don't know why I'm saying we. The reason I'm so like partisan about this stuff, way more so than normal, is it becomes a thing about like fairness and demonizing the other people when you, I'm I'm in favor of rules and the rules existed for hundreds of years for a reason. It encourages you to reach across the aisle. The Republicans were not necessarily doing what they should have been in in reaching back across the aisle. So I understand Reed's frustration, but to just change the rules when you don't like the outcome infuriates me. And to hear that again from, again, the, the what I would call like the radical left wing infuriates me. I will end though by saying, Thank goodness that Biden's the nominee. I don't think he would go for anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in many ways, um, I think that's, I think that's 
partly well said. I, I mean, the, the situation for the Democrats in 2012-2013 was one of basically Republicans were not willing to do anything. Their whole tactic was that we're going to stall everything and end everything and then when elections come around we'll say look at your president he's done nothing right that was the that was the point um and to to say there there may not have been some like racial elements behind that i i think uh, we would be naive to think that it was just barack obama he you know aside from really proposing an expansion to to health care um he wasn't that radical of a president, right? To get the kind of reaction that he got. But I think the point still stands. If you change the rules and then someone's now using those rules against you, yeah, who, who are you to who are you to complain? Um, but it 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 does, and it and in many of the in many ways, those rules when the issues were particularly contentious were designed to force. You like you you couldn't just ram it down someone's throat. You had to actually convince them and get their buy-in. Um, and and really, I think the Democrats, unfortunately, I mean, in many ways, are like talking to a brick wall in a lot of things. So it's difficult to reason with a brick wall. Um, but that being said, it's not the way to to win. It's just not. And not the way the country was meant to be. You know what's so frustrating? We keep going back to this. In an ideal world, you would get consensus builders in the middle that would vote to reestablish the filibuster. Um, Because that, like, it worked and it forced you to come to the table. And now you don't have to. And the party in the majority never is never going to want to give up that power, right? All you need is 51 votes or 50 in the vice presidency, right? So it's, you know, it's this situation where there's it doesn't appear that there's any hope uh for getting it better you know at the time reed said well the senate isn't functioning and he wasn't wrong about that as so he said we're going to make it function but this isn't making it function this is not democracy this is the majority by one senator ramming down the throat of the minority anything that they want and that's uh that is in my opinion objectively bad for the country yeah it, it's bad in in so far as you can't get um, you you can't get support in the air for for pol- like at the end of the day when we decide on a policy you can't have you know take take Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act you cannot have half of the government saying that the, you know this is a terrible idea you got death panels this that and the other thing it's like a publicity nightmare and you 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 really need to get the buy-in of the people who are most skeptical in order for all people to get behind something to give it a fair shot right and the idea that like or we just have just enough votes it's not it's it yeah it's never going to be the way it becomes about winning as opposed to making the country better and i I think mcconnell is great at his job he is great for the republican majority in the senate he's i don't think he's good for this country right I mean, I, I would I would totally agree. I think I think one of the things that's hard for left leaning people to understand, and I and I think some of the concerns about like conservatism at its core is really about like, all right, let's let's hit the brakes for a second. Let's like you know figure out what's actually working and what's not before we smash the whole thing and start over. And a lot of progressivism is like. This is not working. Let's smash it and let's start over. And there is there is benefit really to to looking at at both of those approaches, but they have to be done kind of hand in hand in order for kind of that like gradual progress to a more perfect union. Because when you have simply one side ramming something down the throats of the other side, then you get that the voice in dissent who's just poking at like the whatever they want to say and you know they're powerless to do anything but they have that voice and that platform and that that's kind of you know getting that that gets tossed back and forth in history right we switch um from from blue to red and red to blue back and forth you know since since the inception Great. of the country it's the right point. <laughs> which is yeah, yeah. which is which is the idea that we course correct like right. that that's part of it and i think yeah i mean you can certainly argue 
that some of these um, some some of the precedent that has been sent is really not allowing for that or is you know this the thing in like uh you're skidding along a, an icy road and and rather yeah you're just swinging back and forth until all well, of a sudden yeah, the car you're supposed flips to turn over. into it right yeah, yeah but everyone yeah turns the other right. way and yeah right. now you're in, you're and in now this. you're in a ditch yeah. um which is feels like the, yeah we know what yeah exactly with the wheels just spinning yeah. above it like that's a good visual for where it feels <laughs> like we are right now yeah uh i think we'll probably cut this segment here i, I do you know before we do our next episode, Trump will um, have his nominee, and he said he's going to nominate a woman, which I'm really pleased with, and I think is good. Yeah. Um, I think I, it's good for a number of reasons, right? Uh, not only politically, but uh, it's good that we'll have continue to have three women on the court, which is the absolute minimum that we should have. Um, and I think it's also good that the women will be on opposite sides. It always kind of bothered me when all of the women were on one side, mm. and you know, it felt like. Uh, a, a gender split when it was really an ideological split. Uh, so I'm I'm excited because I think this justice will be confirmed. So to have uh, you know women on different sides of issues just to show that this isn't like the female position. This is you know the ideological position. Uh, but the the two names that have risen to the forefront are Amy Coney Barrett, who everyone had anticipated. She was I think the the odds on favorite at this point, but also. Um, Barbara Luaga, um, who's a Cuban-American justice down out of Miami. Um, and so those, I would be surprised if it wasn't one of those two, but uh, we'll address this on a later issue, but their confirmation hearing will be fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I, I think to, to wrap up this segment, I think one of the things that, um, despite sort of my feelings about the process, um, the Supreme Court, unlike some other appointees, like actually... Uh, say what you want to say about the justices and 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 how they lean they're qualified um individuals which um has not really been the case for many of the other appointees in this administration but that's one thing where we all agree if they're going to be doing this at the at the highest level um that regardless of of what we think they might or how they might rule on certain issues we know that they have um certain qualifications that that uh that at least there's that. If I'm gonna <laughs> if I'm gonna grasp on anything, I think the the danger here is that at, at six to three, um, a judicial body that should be evaluating each case individually on the facts, um, because we know that it has been designed to have this bent. You know, it was once liberal and it is now conservative and is going to be so for a long time. Um, I, I think that's something that that as like country we have to sort of be aware of um in in ways that that perhaps we haven't been certainly those on the left you take for granted um when the supreme court is in your favor um, and it was for a long period and it was and it was it certainly was um you know you don't get roe v wade and brown versus board of education without kind of a progressive leaning court you know at for the times um i think obviously there's going to be a lot more to come from this, um, so we'll just have to stay tuned. Come on, come on. I see no changes. Wake up in the morning and I ask myself, is life worth living? Should I blast myself? Of being poor and even worse, I'm black. My stomach hurts, so I'm looking for a purse to snatch. Cops give a damn about a need, bro. Pull a trigger, killing. He's a heat, bro. Get it. So from there, I kind of wanted to transition um, to the recent decision, um, really not to press charges against the officers involved in um, the killing of Breonna Taylor in Louisville, and I, I think I. And I hope it doesn't feel like too much of a stretch, but I wanted to make the connection of sort of the role of law in civil society. Because I don't, um, you know, I asked you this earlier if you if you had seen what the district attorney, I believe it was the district attorney, um, when he was sort of announcing the the decision not to bring these charges, he was like, "I know this is going to make a lot of people angry, but based on the facts of the case." I really can't do anything here. In many ways, it seemed like he felt like 
the law was failing him. Okay. Yeah, that the law was failing him and that he was sort of powerless because he knew that as soon as he said that, it was going to touch off, you know, major destruction in his city, which is which is really what we've seen unfold um, today. I don't know what you're what you've been reading and what your thoughts are. Yeah, it's so it's, far. it's the whole situation is tragic, and there's there's no there's no light light in in this situation. Uh, there's there's not a whole lot to really argue, in my opinion. I. You know, it's so stupid to say. I, I can't empathize with, you know, how black people feel about seeing this. You know, when, you know, a, a young black woman who's done everything right in her life is literally asleep in her apartment and is shot and killed and there are no charges, right? That's, I mean, I can sympathize and I understand why, how, how hard that must be, but I, there's no way I can feel that in a level that they could feel that on. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's terrible and tragic, but... Like you said, if, if you look at the, the circumstances kind of as the law laid it out at the time, the police officers were serving a warrant, which was you know given to them by a judge. Right? These police officers were probably not the detectives that investigated the case. They were just doing their jobs. They served their, that warrant legally. Uh, the, you know, Breonna Taylor's boyfriend has someone breaking down his door in the middle of the night. He is a, you know, has a legally registered firearm. He gets up to defend himself as well he should have. Fires. The officers are now taking fire as they come in. They fire back, understandably so. And tragically, Breonna Taylor dies. It's, it's, a, I, I don't know what other word to use besides tragedy. It's a, it is a tragedy. Did anybody do anything wrong, like individually? I don't know. And I think that's where the, the DA's frustration was is that and this is kind of two points here where um you know when there are protests it's like understandable not going to criticize protests in a situation like this because there is righteous anger but it kind of we talked about when we talked about the nba protests is like like what are we going to do we need to talk about systemic change great and so there are things in the system that need to change as opposed to uh like in, these individuals aren't held accountable. I understand the frustration, but legally they didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, and that and that's and that's I think where <laughs> when you see people, you know, flipping cars and lighting things on fire, as hard as that is to swallow. I mean, the the main tenant of all of these protests, um, you know, sort of the. The, the peaceful civil disobedience, some of the, for lack of a better word, rioting is no justice, no peace, right? That means that in a world where, you know, we're not getting treated fairly, like you don't get to sit at home and watch TV and live your life as if nothing is wrong because, you know, our world gets flipped upside down when a police officer knocks down the door and, sh you know, shoots somebody um, in her bedroom. Um, I, I, I think... I, you know, I totally understand the decision at the end of the day, what the only other thing he could have done is potentially brought charges and they would have had to have been found innocent because on the facts, on the surface, just like you said, they were doing all of the things that they were supposed to be doing. But when people say that the system is broken, the system is wrong, this is what they mean that like, if you look at every single thing and say that they did everything right and this woman who is you know the most innocent of innocent people here I, and i've seen on conservative media how they're like well she was caught up with the drug lords and <laughs> it's definitely you know oh, she's not innocent here she kind of deserved this like i i mean i, I i'm trying not to get into that because that'll actually get me upset but the idea that that they could be in their own home and shot by a police officer is um should should be frightening to everybody but the reason that it's not is because we know that this only happens in certain neighborhoods this only happens to certain types of people and if i don't look like those people and i don't live in those neighborhoods like i'm good and a lot of um i think you know w what we've discussed and debated on here is you know what do people have rights or you know when people see other people's rights violated whether they're property rights or 
right to liberty or, or life, um, they get up, upset about it, and rightfully so. Um, I think this is <clears throat> this is where the the challenge is um, in terms of right as you were saying, like what do we do next? What is the answer? Um, I think you hear a lot from progressives things like defund the police, but from the conservative side what you really hear is that this isn't the problem that you're describing it to be as many pe- as many white people or more white people get shot than black people i mean we won't talk about how proportions work or, or math or anything <laughs> that, that'll get scary for people but um <laughs> uh the the lack of a recognition of a problem gets me always gets me back to that idea of like law and order if law and order means that we're actually just going to repress these issues then how are we supposed to move forward yeah so when we talk about steps forward and i think that's you know unfortunately what we have to look at right there's no there's no good that comes out of brianna taylor's death there's nothing worth her life uh, but if we're looking at, you know, how can we make change to try to make sure that something like this never happens again. And I think a few things have already happened and a few things could happen. So um, the problem is that, they, is that the police were serving what was what's known as like a no-knock warrant, right? And they're basically just breaking down someone's door and they're doing it at after like three maybe, in the yeah, morning. Yeah, exactly. So while it was legal to do that, and I don't blame the officers for following right. their orders, right? And while they're not legally liable... Like, that's a ridiculous policy to have. Right. And if you are a gun owner, no matter your race or your guilt, you are going to fire back. And as well, you should, right? So the fact that no-knock warrants have been banned, um, were banned in Louisville at the end of May, that's a big win. Huge step. Um, the officers weren't wearing body cameras. That's something that's been in the news, you know, in the last four or five years. And now in Louisville, like, you have to wear body cameras. So, like, again, this is not a good thing, but... This is kind of the policy things that will actually hopefully prevent these things from happening in the future. Um, in Congress, the, the Congress put forth the Justice and Policing Act, which is out there, might get passed at some point, depending on the makeup of Congress. Um, Rand Paul put forth a Justice for Breonna Taylor Act. So I think when we talk about systemic change, these are the things that we're talking about to change policies and change training so that something like this could never happen again. Yeah. And, and while certainly these are good steps I the no knock warrant is something that I learned about I think pre prior to what happened to Brianna Taylor um, but but it's only something in, in sort of recent news that that I've like learned learned really anything about um, and obviously the the issue of body cameras I think there is quite a bit of evidence to say that body cameras themselves are have not really shown to to address some of these issues. I think the reality is, the uncomfortable reality is the level of segregation in our society is contributing to a situation where police are forced to police bad neighborhoods um, and treat those neighborhoods with a certain level of you know heightened awareness, whatever you want to call it, um, where you know the, the answer maybe more structural than at the police level. Like like we were saying, you know, the police were following orders and they maybe got bad orders from detectives, but those guys were also, you know, trying to do what they were supposed to do and, um, f- you know, find this drug dealer or whatever who didn't happen to live there. Not really important, but the the problem is is more so how are we addressing crime and... When you hear about things like defund the police, and I hate them in, in the way that I hated global warming because somebody would look at that and say, it's you know it's cold today, there's no global warming. What are you talking about? Well, defund the police is just bad branding. In, yeah. No, exactly. But in, in the same way is that people are able to intuitively feel like they understand what it means when you say that. Like, I think that the people who have thought about this and are trying to put forth a policy that's saying, you know, we spend a lot of money on policing. We're not necessarily getting the results that we want. Maybe there are some other ways that we can address crime that involve reallocating funds. I think that that's like a reasonable thing, but you say something like defund the police and there's nothing easier to grab onto than being like, they want no cops. They want these thugs to walk around your neighborhoods and terrorize you in your sleep. Like that's a very 
easy way to rebut a policy that I think for most people who've actually thought about the issues does not mean that we want zero police officers because there are certainly situations where like that's your first call like you don't know where else to turn they are there to protect and serve and I think in 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 certain ways we need to stop um, thinking about the police as the problem in this situation and what's unfortunate with the Breonna Taylor case is that everyone's like I can't believe they're not or everyone on the left is like I can't believe these officers are, are not being held accountable and it's like you know you can't set the rules or have someone follow the rules exactly as they're set and be like dude what are you doing you didn't like you did not follow the, the, the rules bad right? rules yeah right. bad rules right and so that's I think where we hope that I mean, at least at the local level, we can start to to think about these issues in a more critical way than, like, is is the police at fault or, or not? Right. And I think that's a, a really good and important point is that I pointed to some specific changes, which I think are going to make positive differences in Louisville. And hopefully, you know, those those kind of changes ripple across other communities and make positive changes in their policies. But uh, there are bigger issues, and this is... You know, not really the time for we should have longer conversations about this amongst you know housing segregation and um, income inequality and you know educational opportunities right that are all contributing to this problem so when you talk about systemic racism the need for systemic change all of those things and, and more need to be addressed uh, while i i applaud the the changes that have been made and i think will make things safer for people going forward clearly that is just the baby step in hopefully the first of, of, of many steps to come yeah glad we can agree on that
Shredder for 